The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to look where we were at before, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. As always, we'll read them together and then we'll pray and get ourselves back on track here for the new year. Look at verse 4, if you will, please. Moses says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Bashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, it has been a very long time for us since we have been here in Genesis. And so it's time for us now to reacclimate our minds and our hearts to these truths that you have been teaching us here in this foundational book of the scriptures. So this morning, Lord, as we come, our goal is, first of all, just to remember all that you've shown us up to this point. But then, Lord, we want to see the next truths that you have for us here. And Lord, as we've been working through this story, we've come to a very important point here in Genesis chapter 2. We're finally at the point where we're going to see you make man in your image, both male and female. 
And so, Lord, in this room today, obviously, are both genders. In this room are many marriages, many relationships, all of which are impacted by the truths that we see here in these verses. And so, Lord, today, as we begin to work through this passage and through these concepts, I pray that your Spirit will take these truths and make them very, very clear to us. Lord, help us to understand these very foundational elements of what it means to be man and woman. Help us to understand these very foundational elements of what it means to be husband and wife. Lord, we are bombarded from every other direction by all these images and thoughts and opinions about what men and women are supposed to be or what marriage is supposed to be. And it can be very hard for us, Lord, very, very hard for us to weed out the lies and hold fast to the truth. And so this time, this week and next, Lord, is critical. It's critical for our marriages as we go into this year that we understand well what it is you have to say to us here. It's critical that we see these things and agree with them and accept them so that our marriages, our relationships, every aspect of who we are as men and women will accurately reflect the truth we see here in the scriptures that we see evidenced in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come this morning, we very humbly, very honestly, very openly tell you that we need help. We need to see you, our helper, who you are so that we can understand how we're supposed to function here in this world. And so God, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to see these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a long time since we've been in Genesis, and so I thought that we would begin today by simply attempting to reacclimate ourselves to where we have been up to this point uh, in this study. I think we started back in June, I believe, so we've been in it for a good six months now, trying to get these foundational truths of the scriptures, and I think that so far it's been pretty helpful. We started, of course, at the very beginning, looking at Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, the creation story, trying to understand the truths that are there, and I don't think I ever said this uh, while we were going through it. I thought I would point it out today, but you do remember, I know I've said this in the past in other studies we've been in, you do remember that chapter and verse divisions that we see in our Bible are not inspired, right? You remember me talking about that in the past? God did not have Moses write chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, so on and so forth. Those were added much later by men to help us understand or be able to find our way around, excuse me, very quickly in the text. Otherwise, it would be turned to that place where that guy did that thing. Okay, turn there now. You all remember where that place is? That would be kind of hard, but saying turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 10 or something like that much, much easier. Sometimes those chapter verse divisions are very good. They follow the breakdown of the story of the, of the text where it's at. Sometimes they're not. And in this opening story of Genesis, I don't think they did a very good job. They cut it up between two chapters. It goes from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. In actuality, it should be, chapter 1 should be three verses longer. But this is the opening story where Moses is explaining to us how the world, how everything that we see around us came into being. And our goal as we were working through that original story was to look for big picture truths that we see not only in Genesis 1, but that then continue throughout the rest of scripture that we see even into our lives today. And as we did that, we came across how many truths? Do you remember? Seven. Excellent. No, thank you. That was wrong. Not five. Seven truths that we saw there in Genesis chapter 1. I'll show them to you just to remind you of what we learned. 
We saw that God works through process and progress, that he doesn't always do everything in one big blast right up front, that sometimes he does things over time. In fact, often he does. Number two, that he works through division and distinction, separating things and claiming some things as his own. Number three, he works directly and indirectly. Sometimes God does things himself. Sometimes he uses agents of his to do things for him. Number four, he works through authority and submission. Both of those concepts are inherent throughout the entire fabric of the creation story. Number five, he works through unity and harmony, bringing things together underneath his will. Number six, he works through speaking and instructing. God speaks regularly throughout the story. In fact, his words form the flow of the story, and it's his words that will continue to dictate the world and everything around us for the rest of eternity. And then last, number seven, God works toward completion and perfection, that all things are being brought to a specific end under God's plan in his time. Those were the seven truths we learned there in Genesis 1, and the number seven wasn't picked for any specific reason. It's just what I saw. It wasn't on purpose. All of those things were done, if you remember, so that we could see how God went about taking a world that was lifeless and bringing it to what? abundant life. That was his goal through the creation story, to take what was lifeless and bring it to abundant life. And he did that through all seven of those means. And what do we see in our own lives today? That that's exactly how God works now. He takes us who are lifeless or were lifeless in our sins. And in all those same ways, what does he do? He brings us to abundant life through his son, Jesus Christ. And having laid that foundation, Moses then begins to tell a certain number of stories. Does anyone remember how many stories Moses begins to tell? Take a guess and see if you remember. You want to take a guess? You want to be brave? Ten. Very good. He begins to tell ten stories. That's the rest of Genesis. A foundational story to start it off, and then ten stories to explain how Israel came to be. That's his ultimate goal. He's helping Israel understand who they are and where they came from. Each time he begins one of these stories, he starts with a very special word. It's called toledot. Do you remember that? And the word toledot can be translated either these are the generations of or this is the account of. And it's our marker to know when we're moving from one story to the next. And so I'll show you the ten toledots just to remind you again of what we saw as we were looking through this in the past. Here are the ten stories of Genesis. Each one following a different character pretty much. Each one showing us a different aspect of how God brought Israel to the place it was as Moses is writing. And for the past month or so, we've been working our way through the very first Toledot, the first story, which is the account of the heavens and the earth. That runs from chapter 2, verse 4, as you can see, all the way through the end of chapter 4, verse 26. This first story is telling us what happened to that perfect world that God made in Genesis chapter 1. Because as all of us know, that perfect world did not stay perfect very long. It has been ruined, marred by sin. How? How did it go from this pristine environment that we see in Genesis 1 to what all of us experience here today? Well, to tell that story, he goes into this very first Toledot, the account of the heavens and the earth. And we saw that this first story is broken up into three specific scenes. 
Each scene helping set the stage for what's going to happen here in the world. And the very first scene, the one we're in right now in chapter 2, is what I called a betweenquel. Do you remember that? It's not a prequel. It's not a story that comes before a story. It's not a sequel. It doesn't come after Genesis 1. Moses is stepping back into the middle of day 6 and explaining in more detail how God made man. It's a betweenquel, a story that comes in the middle of another story. Moses wants us to understand that God made human beings, both male and female, with three things. The spiritual capacity, the moral responsibility, and the communal assistance they needed to serve him and to keep his commands so that they might enjoy abundant life in his creation. That's what this first scene is all about. And we've spent time talking about the spiritual capacity of man, right? Chris dealt with, what does it mean for man to be made in God's image? Why did God give Adam this beautiful place, the garden? What's all that about? And what it was about, ultimately, is that God wanted someone to represent him on this earth and someone with which he could have a relationship with. And so he made man. Man was the recipient of this wonderful gift of God that the ability to have a relationship with him, his spiritual capacity. We spent time looking at the moral responsibility of man. God just doesn't put him in the garden and say, hey, look, have fun, party on, you know, whatever you want to do, it's fine. He gives man responsibilities, things he must do and things he must not do. And we ask the question, why? Why, God, would you give man responsibilities? And the answer, very simply, was because man is responsible. That's why he gave him responsibilities. Because ultimately what God wanted was not a a robotic relationship. He wants a real relationship. A relationship between people who can love him, who choose to love him. That's what he wants. And so he gives man responsibilities in the garden to obey his word and will. And now today, we're going to finally begin looking at this concept of communal assistance. What what do we mean when we say that? We're, We're going to try to understand how God made man to need the help of others. That this was God's plan from the very beginning that man was not here to just be all by himself on the earth, just man and God. That God wanted man to exist in the context of a community, in the context of relationships. And we're going to study this in two parts. Today, all we're going to focus on is the creation of woman. That's it. Next week, we're going to come back then and build off of that and look at the creation of marriage and tie the two together to try to understand exactly what the scriptures are teaching here. But as we read these verses today, and we're looking specifically at verses 18 to 22, we're going to notice that as God explains to us how he created woman, he breaks the story up into four specific parts. First, you see the problem listed in verse 18. In verse 18, God is going to speak again. And remember, every time God speaks, that's important. That's how Moses moves the story along through God's words. Moses is going to, uh, excuse me, God is going to speak again, and he's going to say something that is incredibly striking. And I'm not exaggerating this at all. He's going to say something that should just grab your attention, that should just knock you off your seat onto your tailbone and break it, okay? He's going to say something that important. He's going to say here in verse 18 that something isn't 
good. Now, if you were here through all of chapter 1, perhaps you recognize why that's such a striking statement, because we're in the middle of day 6. You've got to continually put yourself back into Genesis 1, remembering where you are in the story. You are smack dab in the middle of day 6. And if you'll just turn back one page in your Bible, look at chapter 1 for a minute, you'll notice that that pattern was repeated over and over again of God making something and declaring it to be what? Good. And so you look at verse 10, excuse me, verse 3, day 1, God makes light and the light was... Good. On verse, excuse me, verse 10, on day 3, God separated the waters from the land and it was, verse 12, day 3, God made vegetation and it was good. Verse 18, day 4, God made the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens and they are good. Day 5, verse 21, God made the sea and air creatures and they were good. Day 6, verse 25, God makes the land creatures and they were good. And now here we are in the middle of day 6. God has just made man and he says, it's not good. That, does that strike anyone else as weird? Anyone else as being unusual in the story? I think Moses is intending to shock us a little bit by saying it this way. For five days, God has made things, and every single time he's done it, he's declared it to be good. The word good here means that it's right. Not right morally as if like the opposite of evil. It just, it's what it's supposed to be. It's exactly what God intended. He made light, and it was good. It was exactly what he had in mind. It was perfect as he had designed it and planned it. And now here, he goes and makes man, and man isn't good. Now, I'm not Mr. Handyman, as has already been determined by many other evidences in life, but I'm used to making things that aren't good. I'm used to doing things around my house that do not turn out exactly the way I intended. In fact, and I do not exaggerate with this, everything I've done in my house has never turned out. There's never been a single thing I've done that's turned out exactly the way I envisioned it. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> As raising his hand, that scares me. Um, he threw me off. For me, the problem is a lack of something. Okay, It's either a lack of knowledge, a lack of skill, a lack of basic coordination, a lack of rudimentary math skills to be able to measure correctly, a lack of wisdom to keep the, the guard on the table saw. There's always a lack of something in my, pro, in my home repair that, that causes things to not turn out exactly like I want them to. I understand when I make something and it's not good. But when I look at God here in day six, in chapter two, making man, he makes something that's not good and I ask, why? Why is it that God made something that's not good? Was it, was it because he lacked something? Did he do something wrong? You make a mistake? Well, the obvious answer to that is no. God lacks no skill, no knowledge, no power, none of those things. And so if God made something that isn't good, the only possible reason why is because he did it by design, and get this, on purpose. 
He purposefully made something that wasn't good for some reason. There's something he wants you to see. There's something he wants Adam to see. And so he's done this this way so that it will leap out of us to us. And every single one of us now as readers should be, you know, we should be sitting here with our ears perked open like, okay, what? What's the reason? What, what are you trying to teach us here? What's the problem? Well, the problem, as you can see here in the text, is that Adam, did I go one too far? Yep. No, I didn't go far enough. Adam, there we go. Adam is alone. That's the problem. This isn't good, God says. Man shouldn't be alone. And if you're like me, and you're curious about such things, you begin to ask the question, well, why? What's so bad about Adam being alone? Sometimes don't we all like to be alone? Don't we all need a little bit of time away from everyone else? What's the big problem here? And interestingly enough, God doesn't answer that question for us yet. In fact, the answer to that question isn't found until you look at the solution. The solution is the second part of the story. In verse 18, God not only states the problem, but he also declares what he will do to solve that problem. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. This act will solve the problem. Apparently, the problem with Adam being alone is that he cannot do all the things nor be the person that God intended him to be here on earth alone. He needs a helper. The word helper here is an interesting word. And let me clarify for you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean assistant, okay? It doesn't mean like secretary or or servant, or that kind of a thing. That's not the idea at all. As if Adam just needed someone to wash his fig leaves and make his fruit salad every day. That's, that's not what he needs here. The word is much, much more involved than that. A helper is someone who makes up for the lack of another. It's a completer. It's a partner. It's the one who does what the other cannot do. It's the one who fills the void, the one who makes the other whole. Do you get the idea of what a helper is? It's interesting to me that this word is used a number of times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of the times it's used, probably over three quarters of the time, it's used to refer to who? Want to take a guess? To God. God is normally the person in the Old Testament who is called a helper. So that you can look at a passage like Deuteronomy 33, 29, where Moses says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Happy are you, Israel, because you have the Lord as your helper. David, Psalm 70, verse 5, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, normally God is the one who's called our helper. Normally he's the one who completes us, who partners with us, who comes in to do the things we cannot do, who fills the void, who makes us whole. And God isn't our servant. Nor is he our secretary. 
But the scriptures consistently refer to him as our helper. And as God looked at Adam alone in the garden, God says, it's, it's not good. It's not good that he's alone. He needs a helper to do and be all that I have made him to do and be. And so having stated the problem, having decided on a solution, God does the only logical thing that any of us could think of. He tells Adam to name the animals. I love that part of the story. Because it's so out of left field that it catches everyone off guard when you see it. I mean, because really, if it's not good that he's alone, if he needs a helper to do and be all the things that he's supposed to do and be, shouldn't we resolve this now? I mean, can't, can't naming the animals wait till maybe after the Sabbath? We'll come back on day eight or nine. We can name some animals then. Why now? But see, God is smarter than us. It might not make sense to us at first glance, but what God is doing here is he's bringing Adam and us to the third part of the story, and that's the realization. See, Adam needs to realize something. Adam needs to realize the same problem for himself. God wants Adam to own it, to feel it, to see it. And what better way to do that than to parade all of the other land creatures in front of him so he can name them all here in this little project. Now, Moses doesn't tell us this directly in the story, but I assume, based on how he words this here, that at some point, either before or during this exercise, Adam begins looking for a mate amongst all these creatures because in verse 20, Moses specifically says that Adam named all the creatures but that he didn't find a helper fit for him. Okay, well, why was he looking? Did God tell him to look or did he just think about it at some point along the way? Hey, there's no one else here like me. We don't exactly know, but he doesn't find what he's looking for. And I can, I can sort of picture him sitting like, you know, on a rock. I just have this vision of the, what the garden's like. So I can picture him sitting on a rock and I, I picture like, this little stage, a little grassy area, and there's trees blocking this side and trees blocking that side. And so the animals are coming out one by one in front of him, and he sees them, names them, and they exit stage right, you know, kind of a thing. And so he's probably down to his last three or four creatures. There haven't been anything up to this point. So he's like, maybe, maybe these last few, one of them will be for me. So he's like, next. Oh, oh, giant centipede, go. Next. Oh, platypus, next. Oh, Starnose mole, next. Hairless cat, what? Are you messing with me? Is this all there is? Is this all that's left? You have to wonder if at some point, with all those animals coming by, none of them are working. What is Adam thinking at this point? All Moses tells us is that none of them are fit for him. None of them will work. The word fit there means suitable or appropriate. None of them will do. And now, just, just for the record, I don't think that that went anything like I just envisioned for you, okay? Not, not even close. Sometimes people use this little detail of the story to question the reality of the story. Well, you know, how in the world could Adam have named all of those animals, every living creature on earth, in one day? How in the world is that possible? And your response should be, the, the text doesn't say what you just said. 
Well, yeah, it does. Look at, look at the end of verse 19 there. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. See, he named every living creature. No. You have to look back at the beginning of the verse to understand what Moses is saying here. What, all he's saying is that what every living creature that God brought to Adam, that, that's the ones he named. Those are the ones he named. Apparently, the text doesn't say it anyway, that God brought all of the animals to him. If you look at verse 20, Moses specifies which animals he named. He gave names to the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. There you go. Three groups of whatever size I don't know. You say, well, that's, that's still a lot. Well, yeah, it is. But be careful of your assumptions here at this point in the story. Remember, he doesn't have to name every type of cow. He just has to say, cow... And he's done with that whole group. Assuming there's even more than one type at this point, we don't know. I don't think that if God is sovereignly bringing a representative of every livestock, bird, and beast of the field to Adam to name, that it would take nearly as long as some people, the critic, may want to imagine in their mind. But however long it took, that's not really the point, is it? Because the point ultimately, is to bring Adam to a realization of the problem that God has already identified. And by the end of verse 20, Adam sees it. He knows it. By that point, he recognizes, I'm alone. I'm the only one here. Bruce Waltke says this, he says, Rather than squandering his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative, God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman. And so through this little project, God alerts Adam to the realization that he's alone without a helper that's suitable for him or fit for him, which brings us finally to the creation. Finally now, after all of this, God is ready to step in and solve this problem that he has made by design and on purpose. And and he wants Adam to see it. He wants us to see it. Now he's ready to fix it. And so, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And I don't think that I could in any way overemphasize the importance or the significance of this act here to you. I don't think it's possible. Because as you read what God does here in those two verses, it's similar and yet different from what we've seen before. It's different in the sense that unlike anything else in creation, God makes woman unique. See, in everything else, he either just speaks it directly into existence or or makes it out of dirt. He tells the earth to do something and the earth does it. Not, Not this time. This time is different. He takes a part of Adam, which we'll talk about more later, a lot more next week. He takes a part of Adam and uses that to make this final creation. It's different. And yet, it's similar. It it reminds me of something we saw back in chapter uh, 2, verse 7, here in in verse 7. In verse 7, we find the statement that the Lord God made man of the dust of the ground. And I I told you when we were going through that, that the word for man is the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, how we normally pronounce it, but it's correctly pronounced Adam. And the word for ground is Adamah. It's the same word. He made the Adam from the dust of the Adamah. 
He's trying to show a connection between man and the earth. He does that by his language. Well, he wants to show another connection here. That's what's similar. But it's not between woman and the earth. It's a connection between man and woman. Just like man and the earth are one, man and woman are one as well. That's what he wants you to see. And this woman that God has made from the very flesh and bone of Adam will be the person who completes him, who is able to make up for the lack, to fill the void, to make him whole, to do the things that he can't do. And what you learn from this story here of the creation of woman is that Adam, all by himself, was not fully capable of either doing or being all that God had intended for him to be. And so he makes woman to complete him, to finish him, and together they represent the image of God on earth. Think back to chapter 1, when Moses there just very briefly states or talks about the creation of man. He says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. Together, they reflect the image of God. Now, what do we learn from this story? You know how sometimes I have to pause a sermon. We have to pick it up the next week. Okay, this is kind of what we're doing today. We're going to pause. But I don't want to leave you without, without something here that you can think about and understand. And so what do we learn just from this first part of the story? Well, I've got two things for you here. Number one, we learn that gender roles are defined by God and predate the fall. Gender roles are defined by God and predate the fall. We've talked about this a little bit before in the past when we were in Colossians 3, though there it was specifically within the context of marriage. I don't intend this statement to be just about marriage here. But in Colossians 3, where Paul was talking about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives, we stopped and asked the question, okay, what's our basis for understanding gender roles? I mean, what, how do you even think about that? Because you, bring, you want to get someone mad? You want to have a fun conversation? Why don't you just stop and like talk to the, the person at the Starbucks counter next time about what they think of gender roles? That would be a fun conversation, and I'm sure everyone in the store would enjoy listening in on all that you have to say there. But, but we have to ask the question, are men and women the same? Are, are, is that what we're learning here? And the answer to that question, biblically, just based on the text in front of us this morning, is, is no. They're not the same. They're similar, but they're different. Adam's created first. He's the one to whom God gives the responsibility to work and keep the garden. He's the one to whom God gives the responsibility to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's the one that God takes and places in the garden. If we look ahead to chapter 3, he's the one who uh, God speaks to first about sin. He's the one who bears the blame for the fall. If you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see that everyone is in agreement that all of it is whose fault? It's Adam's. You say, well, Eve's the one who eats the fruit. She's not to blame because she is not the one whom God has chosen to represent him as the leader here in this this relationship. Adam's not the leader, folks, because he's so superior (laughs) or because he's so much smarter, he's more godly or any of those things. The only reason he stands in this role is because God has placed him here. That's it. 
The woman that God makes afterward is not made to be his competitor or, or someone who's going to try to like, you know, jockey with him for position. No, she's made to be his completer. She's not inferior to him. She's not superior to him. She's suitable to him. She's fit for him, suitable. She bears the image of God right alongside of him, and yet she's different. She's there to do what he can't do all by himself. She is there to fill the voids that were present in his life, in his abilities, etc. The two are similar but different. And it's these truths which I think need to be the foundation of all of our understanding of gender roles and responsibilities in general. See, as you look around at the world today, you see three basic views on gender roles, okay? Number one is chauvinism. You know what chauvinism is, right? It's the belief that normally men are the superior sex, okay? Women are just naturally inferior, and so they can't do this or that. Men are great. I guess it could go the other way as well, but you don't, at least I've never seen it that way before. Chauvinism is your first understanding of how genders work together, relate together, and it says that the man is just naturally superior, the woman is naturally inferior. Second, you have egalitarianism. Save that for a crossword puzzle because it'll come up someday. Egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says that men and women are equal in essence, and that's good, that's true, but it goes further than that to say, well, they're just equal in every sense. There's no difference whatsoever, apart from having babies. There's no difference whatsoever. They're the same in every possible way. And they, all these things are equal. And, and, well, okay, there's truth, but there's things that are wrong there as well. What we would advocate here at Cornerstone is the third position called complementarianism. Eighteen letters across or down. Complementarianism. Complementarianism teaches that men and women are equal in essence before God. Okay, so it's similar to egalitarianism in that sense. And yet it says that they're different in function by God's design. Men are superior. Women are superior. They're both image bearers of God, but given different functions so that they complement one another. It's not him versus her. It's them together make the whole. They complement one another, complementarianism. By God's design, Adam was made to be responsible to God for the things God had entrusted to him. And by God's design, Eve was made to be Adam's helper in those responsibilities. To me, this is just common sense. I mean, if you, husbands, you, you get this, right? Your wife helps you. She improves you. She makes you better. You know, for us, Jamie and I, Jamie has certain strengths that I do not possess and will never possess probably in my entire life. She is a very empathetic person. She can cry for anything. Okay? She feels people's pain, really. I don't. I've, I've hurt people. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm I've hurt people's feelings with my lack of empathy. And I felt bad about it. I, I really did feel bad then. I wasn't trying to be cold. I wasn't trying to be heartless. I did feel bad for them, but I just didn't show it. I didn't know I wasn't showing it, but I just, it's a weakness of mine. Her strength makes up for my weakness. It softens me. It helps me in an area where I need a great deal of help, and I, likewise, have certain strengths that she doesn't possess. I'm really good at just dance on wheat. <laughs> Not so much, right? No. I'm really good at roller skating, I learned. 
Not so much with her. She's a lucky lady, right? You can, you can bet on that. My point here is simply to note how we together make up for the weaknesses that we each have. I have strengths that she doesn't possess. She has strengths that I don't possess. Together, we complement. Together, we make a whole that is far better than we would be separately in any other situation. This is what you see here in the garden. This is what we learn or we see as the basic foundation of our understanding of gender roles in any sense. And so that was something I wanted to point out to you today. The second thing I wanted to show you was this. Like God himself, man was made to live in community. Like God himself, man was made to live in community. I I think we tend to forget sometimes forget sometimes the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity on our understanding of man and on our understanding of marriage. Okay, Let me ask you a question to try to make this clear. Has God ever been alone? Shake your heads. Has he ever been alone? Okay, good. He's never been alone. Because remember, he's one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. He has eternally existed in community. Eternally existed, not alone, okay? This this is who God is. And so when he makes man, he says about him that it's not good that man be alone. And so he makes woman to become one with man. The three-in-one makes the two-in-one. This is what you see here in Genesis 2. And in that union, they more accurately reflect the image of God than they ever could separately. That's just the reality of of what you see here in the Genesis story. Together, they reflect more accurately the image of God than they ever could alone. You see here, just in this very brief comment, that man was made to need the help of others. All of us were made to need the help of others, communal assistance. And as you think about the rest of the scriptures, you see that truth repeated over and over again. Jesus came and died on the cross, yes, to forgive us of our sins. Okay, we get that part. We say that a lot, and so it almost is trite. But you forget sometimes that he came and died on the cross for your sins so that he could make you one with himself. Listen to that and think about it. He came and died to make us one with himself. The New Testament regularly talks about how we are one with Christ, how we're in him, how we've been baptized into him. That's not talking about water. It's talking about being placed into Jesus. How nothing could ever separate us from him, right? We're, we're one with Christ. One with Jesus. Paul even goes so far as to say in Ephesians 5 that marriage between man and woman, something we'll talk about in more detail next week, is really a picture of the relationship of Christ in the church. See, marriage is just a, it's just a, it's just an illustration. It's not even the main thing. It's just an illustration of a much greater reality that's far better, far more accurate, far bigger than marriage ever could be. It's the union between us and God's Son. That's what it's really all about. 
By ourselves, we couldn't get rid of sin. By ourselves, we couldn't be righteous enough to meet God's demands. Guess what we needed? We needed a helper. Didn't we? We needed a helper. And so God sent His only Son to earth as a man to die on the cross for our sins so that He could make us one with Himself. So that He could do the things that we could not do. So that He could fill the voids and make us whole again. And what I learned from this account of God's creation of woman here in Genesis 2 isn't just about gender roles and responsibilities. That's important. That's not the main thing. The main thing I learn here is about our need for a true helper who can help me with the things that I can never do. Jesus is that helper, right? He's the one that the psalmist sang about when he said, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. He's the one that the psalmist sang about when he said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the same God who made heaven and earth, who made Adam and Eve, who helped David in all his troubles, wants to help us too. Look, if you're here today, beginning of a new year, look, if you're here today and you have continued in your stubborn refusal to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, you think that somehow, some way, you're going to manage to to get to heaven all by yourself or you don't really care about it, you have an opportunity this morning to see Jesus for who He is as the helper. The one and only helper you'll ever have. The only one who can fill the voids in your life. The only one who can do the things that you can't do. You need to turn to Him in humility and find Him to be the gracious God who will come to your aid. And for the rest of us, know Jesus as our Savior. It's a new year for us too. Maybe 2011 wasn't so hot for you. Maybe you struggled. Maybe you looked back at a lot of failure, a lot of sin, a lot of regrets. You realize He's your helper too. He's still your helper. He's still the one who can come in and do the things in your life that you cannot do. Still the one who fills the voids in your life that you think sin will fill. It never will. And so today, you also have the opportunity to turn in humility and say, Jesus, help me. And if we do these things, we come in humility to Him, we know what He'll do, right? He'll do what He's always done. He'll help us in any and every need. Lord, Your Word is powerful. Its truths are unchanging. We may be at the start of a new year. Today may be a new day. But Your truth is not new. It has been established since before the world began. And You, in Your wisdom, established these things and these ways You You made things in these ways so that we could see your truth and understand it. You are wiser than us, we confess. You are greater than us, Lord. And so we come this morning and we simply bow our heads and our hearts to you and we say thank you for telling us these things. Thank you for showing us these things. 
Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for caring enough about us to want to speak to us. These are your words we see this morning. And Lord, we may be bombarded by so many other messages from so many different sources around us, but this here is the only message that really matters. And so, Father, this morning I ask that you take your word and that your spirit apply it to our hearts now. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, who has continued in their resistance against the gospel, continued to turn down your gracious pleas, Father, will you please break their hearts? They need you as helper, even though they may not be able to see it. Lord, for all the believers in the room this morning, we have all struggled this past year. Sin is an ever-present foe. And while we may have had setbacks, while we may have failed, Lord, you are still the same helper. You have made us one with your Son. Nothing now can separate us. No condemnation can be placed on us. You are our eternal helper, and you'll be our present help as well. And so I pray, Lord, for all those in here this morning who carry weights or burdens and needs, that they won't continue in their pride to try to solve those things on their own, but will recognize their need for you and will commit themselves freshly this year to come and bow at your word and find their help there. Lord, you have not left us alone even in this task. You've given us a body, a church family, fellow brothers and sisters, all of whom have the same struggles, the same problems. And so, Lord, we come now and we ask that you will, in your kindness, use this little body of believers for your glory this year, not just, not just in the world around us that we want to be used there as well, but, Lord, will you take us and help us to disciple one another, to challenge one another, and to edify one another so that we can be more like Jesus Christ as a result. Father, thank you for the chance this morning to study your word. We ask your blessing on our time in the text. In Jesus' name, amen.